This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you would open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are in a series, we've just begun, a uh, second message into it on the Ten Commandments. And uh, we have a number of resources out at the uh, book area there to help you if you want to study along while we go through the Ten Commandments. Uh, last week, I, I showed you a, a book by Michael Horton, The Law of Perfect Freedom, which we have out there. Also a book by Al Mohler called uh, Words from the Fire that we have as well. We have another one, one more this week that wasn't here last week, but that is here this week. It's called How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments. How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments from Ed Clowney. And you can get that out there as well. Just want to let you know about resources so that you can uh, study along as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. And we're covering the first one today. Uh, the series is called Ten Words Out of Slavery and Into Freedom. And that's really based on the context of how the Ten Commandments are given in uh, Exodus chapter 20. You see, God's people Israel were slaves. They were um, under the power of the great nation of Egypt and under the Pharaoh's rulership. And they had been slaves for 400 years. And God reaches down and pulls them out of slavery through a series of glorious miracles and he he delivers them, he frees them into a land where <clears throat> they can worship him, <clears throat> excuse me, where they can worship him freely. Uh, as a matter of fact, God demonstrates his power over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt by delivering them so that they can come and worship and know the one true living God. And he brings them out into a <clears throat> kind of a wilderness area and, and on this particular mountain, God reveals himself to the people of Israel. They've never heard him speak. Uh, Moses has, but they have never heard him speak. And the mountain where the Israelites are gathered uh, catches fire. Smoke is going up. Deuteronomy says that there's fire going up to the heavens. The, the mountain is trembling. It is an awesome sight. And God speaks these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words, these Ten Sayings uh, from the mountain to the people. And here's how the Ten Commandments begin. It begins with a, a prologue or a kind of a preamble, which we looked at last week. And if you weren't here, I'd recommend you get that simply because that's kind of the, the background for the whole series. You can download that from our website. Uh, or if you subscribe to the podcast, you just get that. Uh, you already have it if that's the case. But you can get that from last week, and then we'll look at the first commandment today. So Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke... All these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. God, we posture ourselves before your word today and we ask that 
you would speak to us through this scripture, that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. And we ask you to communicate your truth to us today. Lord, I pray for anyone here who may not even know you, that today would be a day that that you would break through their own darkness with your light and would grant them new life. And for those who do know you today, I pray that you would grant a fresh vision of yourself, your, your glory, how wonderful you are, and that you would compel our hearts to want to know you more and to want to follow you. And we pray that you would communicate to us in a fresh way the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. So speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're encouraging you to learn the Ten Commandments. We're going to work through them one a week, and so this is the one you could work on this week uh, if you would like to learn them. It's simply, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You'll have it memorized by the end of this sermon. It won't take you long. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I want to open with this question. Is it really necessary in a Christian church to take a whole morning to spend a whole sermon on this commandment? I mean, is it really necessary that we spend time talking about having no other gods before God, that God is, in essence, the one God, the true God? To spend a morning on monotheism, if you will. I mean, probably there's not a lot of polytheists in the room. Um, Likely, it's possible you may be, but probably you're not here at the late service because you were catching the early service over at the Buddhist temple prior to coming here, and uh, then you'll be, you know, going and worshiping another god this this afternoon. Probably that's not your case. You are probably reasonably committed to monotheism. You believe in one god. I remember one guy I was talking to in college and trying to share the Lord with this guy, and I remember him saying to me, you know, of all the monotheistic religions in the world, I think Christianity is one of the better ones. So that was, appreciated that. But, uh, but minimally, you are committed to the idea of monotheism, probably if you were here today. So do we really need to spend time on talking about one God, having no other gods before the one God? There was a study done in the 90s, I, 1990s. I couldn't find any more recent research than this, though I doubt things have changed. But in the 90s, a survey was done by the Barna Group, and this is what it revealed. 76%, that's three-fourths, three out of every four, 76% of all Americans said that they have lived, quote, completely true to the first commandment. So three-quarters of Americans, and we're not any less less self-confident now than we were in the 90s, so the number's surely no different. But three out of four Americans say they've lived completely true to this commandment. Now, there may be some other ones that say, well, yeah, I may not have done so well on that one, but I, yeah, one God, the God of the Bible, I'm I'm for that one. You know, I've, I've got no problem on that one. So at first glance, it could appear that This is the easiest commandment to keep. I mean, there's people that have committed murder, that are in prison today, that are monotheists. We could go interview them, and they would say, yeah, one God for me, the only God, the God of the Bible, that's the God I believe in. So, you know, people who've stolen, 
All kinds of other commandments can be broken by people who would say, no, I, I believe that one, I have kept that one. I mean, we feel generally like we've mastered the basics. And kind of the one God, I got that one down, typically, is our opinion. On first glance, it might appear it's the easiest commandment to keep, but I believe it's first because it's the most important commandment, ultimately. It's the foundation for all the other commandments, and in fact, it is the easiest commandment to break, not the easiest commandment to keep. It is likely the most frequently broken of the ten, I believe, and that's why it's listed first, because when we break any of the other commandments, we're breaking this one as well. If we are coveting and desiring someone else's stuff, we're at that time yielding our allegiance to another God besides the God of the Bible. So usually you get a twofer. If you break commandment 2 through 10, you've usually got commandment 1 right along with it. So you're breaking 2 at once typically. It is the easiest of the commandments to break. And so we want to look at this one today, try to understand what God's communicating to us. I want to do this kind of in three ways. I want to start by talking about what does this commandment forbid of God's people. Secondly, I want to talk about what does this commandment require, because there's something required of us in this commandment. And then thirdly, I want to talk about how does Jesus relate to this commandment? How does Jesus relate to the first commandment? Does he expand it? Uh, And how does he fulfill this commandment as well? Okay, first of all, what does the first commandment forbid? Simply stated, the commandment forbids, what does it say? Having other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before the Lord your God, as he refers to himself in verse 2. God has delivered his people from the darkness of Egypt, and it's, it's hard for us to appreciate what that really means. For 400 years, the people of Israel lived in a pagan environment in Egypt. And they may have heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they weren't free to worship that God. They were living in a world of idolatry, a world of many different gods. Um, They were living in an environment where Pharaoh himself was believed to be a god. And so the air they breathed for 400 years was the air of many gods, polytheism. The, The environment that they knew was an environment that had commitments to all different types types of gods, all different levels of gods, all different types of gods ruling over the creation. So now God has delivered them and brought them to himself to say, I don't want you going to all the other gods. I want you to worship me and worship me alone. And not only that, but he's preparing them as well that as they come now into the promised land, that they not be tempted by the many gods that will be in the nations around them. They're about to come into their own land in the future where God will have his people Israel live for him there. And there's going to be temptations of gods all around them, the nations all around them. And Israel will be plagued with getting mixed up with the Baals and different types of gods throughout. And God wants to ensure that they know that the God who saved them by grace, that's what's happened here. They have been redeemed by grace. God has put the gospel on display, the good news that he has sovereignly delivered his slaves to freedom to be with him. The gospel has come, and now he is giving them the law which follows the gospel in this situation. They are to now be his people living for him based on the grace he has extended them to free them. And they're going to go into a world where many, many gods will vie for their 
attention. And so coming out of slavery, heading into a land where they will have their own, being surrounded by pagan gods, he commands this to begin with. Worship God alone. Have no other gods before me. The word before means before my face. So don't come before my face, which is all of life. We all live our lives before God. Don't live with other gods. The footnote in your ESV also says that before can be beside. No gods besides me, which means that that God is alone to be worshipped, that he is supreme and unique. No other gods. Now, when he says that his people and we are to have no other gods before him, he's not in any way acknowledging that other gods actually exist. I mean, what he's not saying here is that there are a lot of God options out there, and you should pick me because I'm the God that delivered you from Egypt. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not giving credence to other gods. Scripture teaches this elsewhere in many places. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. There is one God. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God is what the Bible teaches us. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, outside of the Old Testament, the New Testament confirms this as well, that there are no other real gods. Paul is addressing a problem in Corinthians, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where he writes to them, and he talks to them because they are converted out of a world of idolatry, and uh, many of them are going back into the temple, the idol temples. Many of them are wanting to know, is it okay to eat meat that, you know, was left over from the sacrifices to these idols? And ultimately, he, he tells them it's okay to eat the meat, and here's why. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that An idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in quotation marks, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here's what he's saying to them. It's not a big deal to eat meat that was like offered up to a pagan god because there is no pagan god. That, that There's a statue over there but there is no real God. That meat isn't really affected by this God because there is no God. There is only one God. Now, clearly, there are demonic powers. God created uh, Satan and angels that ultimately fell away from him and are rebels to him. So there are demonic powers that are of the creation that are under God's authority that the Creator rules over the creation. But there are no other gods out there. And so that's why he, 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 Paul can say, don't, don't worry about other gods. There is one God. You were created for him. You were created through him. And all things exist for him is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if there are no other gods that really exist... If there are no other idols that really exist, then why is it that Paul says, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that God says through Moses, you shall have no other gods before me if they don't really exist? I love what Al Mohler wrote about this. He said, the idol is a nothing, but it is a dangerous nothing. 
The idol is nothing, but it is a dangerous nothing. See, all of us are created with a heart that longs for transcendence. We all long to worship. We are worshipers by nature. We all, by nature, desire or created with the capacity to know God Almighty, the Creator, the One who made us. There is in with each of us a desire to not live just on a horizontal level with material things, but to know real purpose and meaning by knowing God, by connecting with God, by being familiar with God, by encountering God. But here's the problem. Our hearts are sinful. And so what we do, because we have sinful hearts, is we turn that desire, it's a perverted desire, it's a crooked desire, it's a bent desire, and we find all kinds of other things to worship. So rather than spending our worship on God, rather than attaching our allegiance to God, rather than placing our hopes, desires, dreams, longings to know the God that created us, we attach those longings and desires to a thousand other things. So we, instead of worshiping the Creator, worship the created. That's what we typically do by nature. And that is idolatry. See, we often think of idolatry is like a statue representing some false god, and it is. But idolatry goes far beyond something carved by a primitive people. I love the way biblical counselor David Pallison describes idolatry, having other gods, in other words. He says this, an idol is anything that replaces God. That's that's an excellent definition. An idol is is anything that replaces God. And the first commandment forbids idolatry. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall have no other gods before me. See, idolatry is a substitute for God. It's a place, a person, a thing, an idea, a possession, a concept that we go to instead of God. It's someone or something we trust in instead of trusting in God. It's something we rely on instead of relying on God. The temptation to idolatry is not just for superstitious, primitive people carving statues and dancing around a fire in a grass skirt somewhere. That is not those who are the only idolaters. Idolatry is a temptation for all of us, not just the tribesmen in the bush, but the person living in Frisco. Anyone who has a substitute God in their life for the living God is an idolater, and thus we are all guilty. That The battle for Israel in their life will be to avoid God's substitutes. And you know what? That's the battle of the Christian life as well. It's to not replace the living God. Yahweh, as he named himself in the Old Testament, the living God with a thousand other false gods. The first commandment calls us to renounce all lowercase g gods. You shall have no other little g gods before me. Now, we know about this in the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you know they're constantly getting drawn in to the, the gods of the people around them. 
But, you know, that's not just in the Old Testament. We see the same thing happening in the New Testament. And we see at various places certain God substitutes being referred to as idols or gods. Consider, for instance, Philippians 3.19. Paul is writing there about the enemies of the cross, and this is what he says. Their destiny is destruction. Their God, little g, is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. He's talking about these people that are enemies of the cross, and he says their God is their stomach. Now, this does not mean they had a carved image of a digestive tract up on a statue and they were bowing down to, my God is this stomach. This is like some kind of a plastic model in a pre-med class where they're like worshiping that stomach or intestines or whatever it is. That's not what he's talking about. What is he saying? Their God is their natural appetites. What is it they are pursuing? What is it they are taking comfort in? What is it they are relying upon? What is it that satisfies them? What is it that sustains them? What is most important to them? Is it the God of the universe? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer? No, it's their natural appetites. Their God is their stomach. This is their God. Their mind is on earthly things, he says. They seek what pleases their natural desires. And he says that their glory is in their shame. So rather than glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us natural appetites to be used for His glory, which includes feasting at points and thanking God for the provision of food and enjoying food, of course. But these individuals are not enjoying the gift of God They are glorying in their self-indulgence. So the gift of God becomes their God. There's no eternal to live for. There is the satisfaction of present appetites. And all kinds of present appetites can become God. Little g, not just one's stomach. But there are all kinds of natural appetites that we have. So there's an example in the New Testament. Here's another one. Colossians 3.5 Paul says we're to put to death covetousness. Now, that's the Tenth Commandment, so we're going to look at that in great detail. But Paul says, kill covetousness in your life. What's covetousness? Well, it's a desire for something that God has not provided for you. It could be something good even, but it's something that God has not provided. And so the desire is to have something that God has provided for someone else. So we can covet someone else's house. We want that house. We can cover someone else's spouse. We can covet someone else's job. We can covet someone else's health. We can covet someone else's sense of humor. We can covet someone else's intellect. You pick it. Well, you can covet it. If you can think of it, it can be coveted. And so he's saying this desire for other things that God hasn't given you, put to death, Colossians 3.5, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. So, He's not saying that if you covet someone else's car because it runs, (laughs) which has actually been a desire I've had at various points in some of the cars I've owned. God, I don't want something great. I just like something that starts and goes down the road without parts falling out. So just coveting. So it's not as if someone's bowing before a car and worshiping a car and polishing. Well, actually, that does happen in some cases. But you know what I'm saying. It's not the physical object. It is the desire which says this. God, you are not enough. And so, I'm going to come in with other gods. 
that I have to have if I'm going to really have a meaningful life. And I want that car, that person, that job, that reputation, that family, that vacation, whatever it is. I want that. So instead of you being enough, God, here's how I'm going to live. I'm going to live with the if-onlys. If only I had this, my life would be meaningful, purposeful. I'd be content. I'd be satisfied. If only I had this job, everything. If only I had a job, everything would be okay, we can think. And Paul says, put that to death because that is the worship of idols. That is idolatry. That is having another God before God, besides God, in addition to God. We are created to worship, and the first commandment is forbidding us from expressing our worship, expressing our trust, expressing our hope, expressing our allegiance on people and things other than God. Created for something, created for transcendence, created to give our heart, created to give our lives to God himself, created to love God himself, yet often Instead of God, we love something or someone or some idea or some experience more than him. Now, this can kind of sound a little vague. I'm not sure how all that really works out. I mean, you're talking about worshiping things, being an idolater. Here's a quote from Louis Giglio that just brings this very, very clearly home. This is what he says. So how do you know where and what you worship? That is a great question. So we're talking about having other gods. How do we know what other gods we're worshiping? How do we know if they are real to us, if they are in our heart? How do you know where and what you worship? Here's his answer. It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Sure, not too many of us walk around saying, I worship my stuff. I worship my job. I worship this pleasure. I worship her. I worship my body. I worship me. But the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. In the end, our worship is more about what we do than what we say. It's what we give ourselves to, what we desire, what we can't be happy without. What we say, God, you're not enough. These are our other gods. These are our idols. And they are not necessarily the primitive idols that we may consider. I I want to toss out a number of things. The potential for idols is, is simply endless. It really is. We are a creative people. We sin creatively. We can think of all kinds of things to idolize. But I want to just mention a few this morning um, that I think are important. This is a new concept for some of us in the room. Others of us in the room may think, oh yeah, I've already thought about that. Idols, yeah, I've already thought. 
Well, none of us have got that one covered and don't need to think about it again. So I would just like to toss out a number of things, actually not just toss them out. I'd rather it be like a shotgun blast. And may God's pellets fall where he desires so that we see our need and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because we are quickly going to be talking about him. But we will not see our need for him and we will not value what he provides for us if we think we're in the 76% that have this one down, who, who live perfectly according to this command. What kind of things can we put our hope in, our trust in, our desires in? Well, it could be a physical object. It could be a house. It could be the desire to buy a house. It could be the desire to pay off a house if you're perhaps a little bit older. It could be the desire to have a different house, a bigger house, a better house, and a better location. It could be furnishings for our house. It could be better furnishings for our house. It could be sofa cushions that are not exploding. It could be better furnished. If I just had that, then life would be okay. It could be the way our house is kept. It could be our idol. Everything's got to be just the way I want it. it. Could be our car. It could be something we collect. It could be technology. I've got to have the latest and greatest for my life to be better. I must have every device that comes out that begins with a small letter I. I must have them. I must have pad, pod, and phone. I must have all, I must have all technology because in efficiency and having the latest and greatest, my life will be okay. And so I think about it. All the time I think about it, I look at it. I covet those who have what I don't have. And at that point, I'm breaking number 10 and number 1 at the same time. Clothing. I want different clothing. I want better clothing. I want to identify with clothing. Or how about this? I want to identify with I don't really care how I look. And so because clothing doesn't matter to me, I'm better than you. So self-righteousness then becomes my idol of myself being better than you are. Clothing. See, all these are materialism. A car, a collection, a technology, a house, a different house, a furnishing, a clothing. See, this is saying contentment and joy and life is found in something that I can touch. It's material things that bring me life. Of course, in our part of the country, no one would know anything about that. Frisco, Texas, I'm sure this one is a, a distant sin that people used to commit in another life or something, right? Well, this is definitely the air we breathe. A person, it could be a person that we idolize, a leader, a parent, a child, someone that we want the approval of, that we want affirmation from to the point that it matters too much to us. Obviously, we want other people to recognize God's work in our life or something like that. That's not necessarily wrong, but it's when the desire of someone to help me matters too much to me, like me, approve of me. It could be money. Money, that's sort of the idol of our age. How much of our thought life and heart rests upon this? I'll be okay if I have this. I'll be secure if I have money. And the poor and the rich alike idolize money. It does not matter how much of it we have. It is an inner desire. It could be a role. We, want a, we draw security in a role. We should be drawing security and meaning and identity in God. 
Our relationship with God as a child of God is where we find our meaning, but oftentimes we find it in a role. I want to, I want to lead. I want to be prominent. I want to be respected. I want to be known for this. I want to be a supervisor. What, whatever it is, we crave recognition and respect, and so a role becomes what we need if only we have that. It could be an image. Image is everything. So we think. So it's an image. I want to be, I want to project an image that is cool to those for whom I want and value respect or their opinion. So that is really varied. I want the image of being someone artistic, someone artsy, someone outside of the box, someone creative, someone edgy, someone avant-garde. It's what I want to be known as. I want to be fashionable. I want to be fashionable in pop culture and, and be aware of, of, of entertainment and styles, or I want to be fashionable in high culture and, and the various temptation to snobbishness that goes along with that. I want to be thought of as one who is fashionable. I want to be thought of as one who is fit and a fitness and a health freak. And I want that image going out that this person is, is taking care of themselves, himself or herself. I I want to be someone who is thought of as wealthy. I want to be someone who is thoughtful and intelligent. Whatever the image is, I want to be thought of as a good mother, a great mother, the best mother. Whatever the image is, that can be something that we chase. It can be a pleasure, drugs, alcohol, sex, an experience, can be a place to seek relief from the challenges of the world, which is where drug and alcohol abuse can come in, where it ultimately can control one's life, but starts with being the thing that we seek instead of God. Where do we take a troubled heart? We take it to a substance rather than to God. It can be sex. That can be a God. See, it's a God when we are willing to defy the God of the universe's standards to, um, to satisfy or gratis, grati, gratify our own desires. Sex can be a God. It, can be a, it is a good gift from God when used in the confines of marriage. But when not, it can be something that even becomes... Um, domineering, dominating, enslaving in one's life. And maybe not just the actual act, but it could be pornography that can be dominating. Some idols are not as obvious as money, power, possessions, sex. Some are like a good thing that we desire too much, like work. We're commanded by God to work. In the book of Genesis, at the beginning, it says that God created us to work and keep, created Adam to work and keep the garden, to work and cultivate the garden. And so all of us have a garden to work and keep. If you're in school, that's your, that's your work. You, you work and keep your schoolwork. If you are a homemaker, then that's your domain for working and keeping and working out God's command. If you work in the marketplace, um, then that is... Your domain, you work and keep, whether you're in a professional role or the trades or whatever it is. But see, God has called us to work and God has given us responsibility, but that can become an idol where we seek our identity, where we are motivated by fear, where we are motivated by success and the craving for success 
and promotion in our job, and all of a sudden, our job becomes our God. And so we're not really a workaholic. We're a person that's embraced another God. We're an idolater. That would be a better way to look at it. Or something like food, which is a gift of God. It meets a basic need. It's to be celebrated. Food surrounds celebrations. Food is, uh, is a wonderful provision of God with all kinds of flavors and what a blessing food is. But sometimes food cannot just be a gift from God, but can become our God. So food is the place we go when we are troubled. Food is the place we go when we're bored. Food is the place we go for any pain that's in our heart. And then it's a, it's a God substitute. I mean, no, again, this is so subtle. We're not just talking, we're not talking about bowing down to a Twinkie. We're just talking about scarfing a bunch of them when life's not going well. Our food can be a God. Do you know church could be a God? We can be idolaters here today. Church can be a God. I'm thankful for the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. And in particular, I'm thankful for Grace Church. I'm thankful for the people of Grace Church. I'm thankful for the leaders of Grace Church. But it is very subtle to move from being thankful for what God's doing and where he's placed us to being attached to it. So then our methodology, our doctrine our way, that becomes our resting, our security. That becomes what we are about. And the pride of our hearts even emerge in that. And so we define ourselves and our church and our practice different than others, but not just different, better in our minds. Listen, we're not here to build a name for Grace Church. We're not here to celebrate Grace Church. We're not here to celebrate Sovereign Grace Ministries. We're not here to highlight uh, our name and make a name for ourselves. For if we are the very church that that is the vehicle of glorifying and pleasing God becomes a God and is a vehicle for our own, our own glorification. See, it's subtle, right? I mean, it it could just happen anywhere. All kinds of God substitutes in our lives. And this is what God says. When you come before me, don't come with any other gods. Empty your hands, you know, empty your pockets and come before the one true living God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. That's what this command forbids. This, this command requires something as well. Surely this command lays out a restriction, no other gods. But we would miss the glory of this first word, this first commandment, if we don't consider what it at least implicitly commands. Look at the preamble again. I am, verse 2, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. I read those together. The the Jews read those two together typically. I brought you out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. What's he saying? He's saying all the cheap imitations in Egypt, all the cheap imitations of the people that will live surrounding you in the promised land, All the cheap imitations that we see on our television and on the internet and with our eyes all around us. All the cheap imitations of God's, all the God's substitutes, God says, have nothing to do with them. You may not have them, but you do have me. That's the whole point. I am the God that delivered you out of slavery. 
by doing glorious miracles, by attacking the very gods of Egypt. That's what each of the plagues symbolized, represented. God was demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt and ultimately over the power of Pharaoh himself. And so God brings his people out of Egypt. He passes them across the Red Sea. He brings the Red Sea together and destroys the enemies of God's people who are seeking to harm them. And he brings them so that they may worship him. Yes, they, they don't have the freedom to chase the gods which are slaves around them. The, the gods which produce slavery. They don't have the freedom to, to chase slavery anymore. But they do get God. You don't get to fix your hope on money which is uncertain and passing away and will be your very destruction. But you do get the God who created everything. You don't get to base your life and your hopes on your reputation and your accomplishments, your pride. You don't get to build a kingdom to yourself but that is a puny kingdom that blows away and is momentary. But you do get the king who created everything and who became man in the Lord Jesus Christ and gave his life to you for you to free you. You don't get the momentary escape that certain gods can bring. You don't get the momentary you know, uh, escape through drugs, alcohol, sex, some other experience that just helps you forget about the pain for the moment, but you do get the one who is acquainted with grief, who understands pain, who died in your place, the Lord Jesus Christ, and died so that you may have life, so that your heart may be guarded and protected by the peace of God, the God who will sustain you through your difficulty and one day bring you to himself to see him face to face and be with him for eternity. No, you don't get the temporary false gods which are weightless, you get the weighty God of the universe who changes everything. So don't come before me, God says, bringing all those cheap, paltry, temporal, filthy substitutes. Come before me and receive me. It's a glorious thing God does for us. And he's not restricting us. See, sometimes the idea can be, hey, if I have You don't have to obey the God of the Bible. That's so restricting. I want freedom. Just ask someone who's given themselves over to an area of sin. Ask someone who's paid significant allegiance to a God. Ask someone whose life is controlled by drugs, alcohol. Ask someone whose life is controlled by pornography. Ask someone whose life is controlled by climbing the corporate ladder for more and more recognition. Ask someone whose life is controlled by gaining more and more and more and more possessions until they're happy and ask them how free they really feel. That's slavery. That's not freedom. God is not making people slaves in a sense that he's restricting them from life. God is calling people away from slavery. That's what he's done. He's brought them out of slavery so that they can experience life, taste and see that the Lord is good, is what the Bible says elsewhere. We are freed 
from the power of sin so that we may live for God. Listen, if you're here today as a Christian, is that your view of God's Word? Do you find God's Word confining so that it limits your joy? Or do you find God's Word freeing so that you experience real joy? If it's the first, then you've misunderstood. You've misunderstood the whole Bible. God has freed you to know Him and to experience life. Who in the world would want to go back to Egypt if we really thought about it? But in the moment, when we're looking around and the other gods are all around us, they look so appealing for what they can give us in the here and now. And God said, with the eyes of faith, come to Him alone. Don't look for life among the fake gods of this world. Now, God's given us many things that I've mentioned. God's given us food. God's given us money. God's given us sex. God's given many things which, when used in a proper way and for His glory, uh, are to be received gratefully and thankfully. I'm not, not arguing here for some kind of asceticism where everybody sells all they have and we go live on a mountain somewhere and wear a bed sheet. I, I mean, it's not, I'm not talking about some kind of extreme asceticism. God's opposed to that too. I'm talking about the gifts of God being used in an appropriate way for the glory of God so that we take pleasure in God who gave the gifts rather than allowing the gifts themselves to be our hope, dream, and pleasure and then enslave us. There's really two options. There's slavery and there's freedom. And the gods of this world will inevitably lead to slavery. And you think you're having a good time at the moment, but before long, the constricting power of these gods will reveal themselves in our own destruction, and for many, with eternal destruction. This command really requires the worship of God, the glory of God, delighting in God. Do you know that's how Jesus lived? Here's what Jesus has to do with this. Jesus never broke this commandment. He never did. Jesus never chased another God. Now, he was God, but he was also man, man and God. Jesus never chased another God. Here's what Jesus said. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, you know what sustains me? You know what I live for? You know what's like food to me? You know what's like a feast, a meal? Do you know what sustains me? Do you know what, do you know what keeps me going? It's to do the will of God his father. It's to please God. Jesus said, here's what I'm living for. My God is not my stomach. My God is the creator, and I'm living for God. That's like my food. When you talk about that's food, you know, we say, boy, that's my meat and potatoes, or that's, that's our bread. That's what, we, that's, that's what keeps us going. He's saying that is to do the will of God. He said this, I only do what I see the father doing. In other words, I'm going to do what God is doing through his kingdom. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to pursue what he is doing. I'm going to pursue where he is active. I'm going to pursue what pleases him. I'm going to do what I, would see, what I see God the Father doing. Not what I see the idols of this age that aren't even really alive, but what I see them doing. I'm not going to do what I see fallen human hearts chasing after. He says this on the night before he dies in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but yours. That's fulfilling the first commandment. I submit my life to you. No other gods, you alone. 
not my will, your will. I want to do whatever pleases, whatever glorifies, whatever honors you. Christ fulfilled this commandment completely. We have broken this commandment regularly and often. Every time we've longed for something, trusted in something, desired something, followed something, every time we went another direction instead of acting in a way that would please the Lord, we've broken this command. And Jesus fulfilled that command so that those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who are united with Christ, as as the New Testament says, those who are in Christ, those who are with Christ. If you're a Christian, you you are in Christ. You are connected to Christ. And 1 Corinthians says Jesus has become our righteousness. So the righteousness of Jesus is your righteousness if you're a Christian. And God declares you righteous based on his fulfillment of this command, though you and I have broken this command. That is the glory of the gospel, that we can come here as worshipers today whose hands have been dirty with other gods all week long, and yet we can come today and freshly receive forgiveness, and God relates to us and welcomes us to a throne of grace because he has placed his, our idolatry on Jesus who died in our place for our sins, and he has credited Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. He's credited that to us, and so he's, he welcomes us in worship on the basis of our Savior's obedience and not ours. That's the good news today. And he died on a cross to forgive our many idolatries. If you're here and you're not a Christian, first of all, let me just say, we're really glad that you're here. We, we really are. I'm, I'm thankful that you're here. And I, and I, I hope you'll bring your friends because we're, we want to tell you the truth of the Bible and really we want to help you. We care about you. And You may consider yourself not a Christian, but you are a worshiper. You are a worshiper. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone looks outside of themselves, even looking in ourselves for for what life is all about. That's worship. That's just worship of self. You are a worshiper. You worship your stuff. You worship your reputation. You worship pleasure. You worship... um, success, you worship comfort, you worship leisure, whatever it is, we all worship. And every time you act, every time you think, every time you speak in a way that is not motivated with full heart devotion to God, loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, every time you act that's not honoring God by loving others, every time you do that, you're sinning. Every time you attach your heart to something besides God, you are breaking this first commandment. And so you are guilty. We are all guilty. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, what we have earned, what we are to be paid, is eternal death. And we deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from God for eternity because we've broken this command so frequently. So this command alone, we don't even need to cover the next nine to talk about what would be a fair sentence for any of us because God's, God's command is to be perfect. That's what he says. Jesus said, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. So we can look at the first command alone and say, we have blown that. Scripture says if you're guilty of one part of breaking the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. And so we are guilty before God today, but the good news is God sent Jesus to die for sins, to give his life for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that you can turn from those other gods. You can turn from sin and turn to God. 
and say, I've broken this command and all the others. I'm, I'm guilty before you. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. So you turn from your sin. You turn to Jesus Christ. And you believe that he died as a substitute for you and was buried and was raised again on the third day. If you're not a Christian, what this first command, you shall have no other gods before me, what it says to you is that you are a lawbreaker and you are in serious trouble. But Jesus has come to rescue people out of serious trouble. That's what he's come for. And so we'd urge you to turn to Jesus Christ today, to believe in him, to receive forgiveness for your sins and to receive real life to to meet the one you were created by and for whom you exist today. If you are a Christian, then your call today is to turn from other gods as well and to realize that that the gods of this world, which are no real gods, but but we chase them anyway, that, that they're enslaving. They are not freeing. Jesus pulls people, God pulls people out of Egypt frees them, and then shows them, this is how you can live for my glory, to please me and to be a light in the darkness. And the temptation is that we want to go a whole lot of other places. God's brought you out of Egypt to worship him alone, to be satisfied in Christ. And if you're a Christian today, I believe God would encourage you to let your chains go and embrace the Savior. I I had an image in my mind as I was preparing this sermon. Yesterday I had this image, uh, not a literal vision, but just a sort of a mental picture of someone standing with their wrist wrapped in chains and someone with their ankles wrapped in chains and feeling bound. But the amazing thing about the picture was there was no lock on the chains. And so to be free, all the person really had to do was drop their arms like that for the chains to fall off and sort of shake and step out of the chains around their ankles and be free. And I think that's a picture of many of us in the room. We have been freed by Jesus Christ. He has broken the power of sin, and yet we have taken the gods of this world, we've taken various sins, and we've wrapped ourselves again in them, and we felt trapped. We feel bound. We feel like we can't get out of it, and I want to tell you, you can get out of it by the power of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit who has already made you free by the power of his word. And the way we drop those chains and step out is we humble ourselves. We recognize the bondage we've gotten ourselves back into. We recognize what Jesus has done for us. We humble ourselves and ask his forgiveness. We humble ourselves and ask someone else to help us, and God sets us free. And those chains can be any number of things. They could be the life of Egypt, that now you're in the free land of promise, and you're still going back to Egypt, and you're wrapped up in in something. You could be wrapped up in bitterness or revenge. You could be wrapped up in covetousness, desiring what God's not provided for you, and I can only get that. And you think about it all the time. It just dominates you. It could even be a good desire, like a desire for marriage. It could be a desire to have children. It could be a good desire. But because it's become everything to you, and it's your if only, if only I have this, this job, this thing, whatever, this person. If you think about it all the time, and you're, you're unhappy because this is what you think will bring you happiness, and you're wrapped up, and you just need to be humble yourself and be freed by Christ today. It could be other things I've mentioned. It could be your reputation. It could be your job. It could be success in your job. It could be escape, alcohol. 
drugs. For Christians, yes. For Christians, yes. It's one of the idols of Egypt, of our age, that we can go to to seek comfort for our hearts. Could be sex, could be pornography, where desire is just, you're just enchained and enslaved by it. And Jesus died and rose to set you free. He calls you to humble yourselves and step away from your chains. There's no lock on the chain. For Jesus has beaten the power of sin and of death. Do not have other gods before me, he says, but do have the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do have him as your God, as your hope, as your comfort, as your peace, as your provider, as your everything. For that's who he is. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we recognize that we have looked a lot of other places and desired a lot of other things and we have leaned on a lot of other people, experiences, images, ideas, philosophies. Lord, we have looked all kinds of places when all along you've given your life that we might know you and you alone. Lord, I want to pray for anyone in this room that's never met you. I pray today that you would break into their heart and grant them new life and that they would turn believingly to you, that they would turn away from all the other gods that have dominated them and that they would receive freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. God, would you do that right now? None of us can do that for anyone, only you. So I pray right now, God, would you please touch some dead hearts and raise them to life, touch some darkened hearts and bring them light give them forgiveness of sins and help them turn and walk in freedom before you. And Lord, I pray for Christians in the room that have already been forgiven and have eternal life. But Lord, we look at all the stuff around us and so often we say, you're not enough. Forgive us for looking to other gods. You're more than enough. You're everything. You will spend eternity with you. We love you, Lord. You are our hope. And I just pray today that you would free people who are chained by their own chains pray that you'd grant humility, that we could be honest about where we are, that we could be real, that we could get some help, that we could have a breakthrough, that we could walk in the freedom that you bought for us and that you shed your blood for today. God, we know that's not often a simple process. It's a, sometimes a lengthy process, but would you begin working deeply in hearts today? Would you begin giving power to live the free life that you've called us to live? not enslaved to sin, but servants, bondservants of the living God. God, do a work even right now, I pray. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.